you may notice that every word that comes out of your mouth has more attached to it than just the textbook definition of the words that you end up using. You'll find that the tone of your voice gives an emotional context to it. You'll even notice that if you're sick or congested, that information is transmitted as well. You might even come to realize that momentary cracks in the voice have some kind of Freudian significance at times. What you may not realize is that your voice and the way you choose to voice it is a form of expressive dance, and that expressive dance is a form of nonverbal communication. There is an actual neurological basis to the claims that I am laying out for you, and this is beautifully put by Dr. Eric Jarvis on the Dr. Andrew Huberman podcast. So let's just hop straight in. There is an evolutionary relationship between the brain pathways that control speech production and gesturing. Uh, and, and the brain regions I mentioned are directly adjacent to each other. And why is that? I think that the brain pathways that control speech evolved out of the brain pathways that control body movement. For vocal communication, uh, you have most vertebrate species vocalize but most of them are producing innate sounds that they're born with uh, producing. Uh, that is babies crying, for example, or dogs barking. Uh, and only a few species have learned vocal communication, the ability to imitate sounds. And that is what makes spoken language special, the breathing, the grunting, and so forth. A lot of that is handled by the brainstem circuits, you know, right around the level of your neck and below. Uh, like a reflex kind of thing. So, or, or even some emotional aspects of your behavior in the hypothalamus and so forth. But for learned behavior, learning how to speak, uh, learning how to play the piano, teaching a dog to learn how to do tricks is using the forebrain circuits. And what has happened is that there's a lot of forebrain circuits that are controlling learning how to move body parts in these species, but not for the vocalizations. But in humans, and in parrots and some other species, somehow we acquired circuits where the forebrain has taken over the brainstem and now using that brainstem not only to produce the innate behaviors or vocal behaviors, but the learned ones as well. So that's pretty interesting right there, that there is a direct neurological connection between the way that our bodies move, especially when it comes to not just utilitarian methods of getting from A to B, but in ways that we actually communicate ourselves. And we'll get into some pretty cool statistics that he shows up, or at least anecdotes. The main thing that I want to focus on there is it's interesting that the way that he says that these brain regions are tightly connected with one another, he'll get into deeper, but he really does say that the more modern lobe of the brain, which is the cerebral cortex, that is the third lobe, because in there, there's the midbrain, and you could call that the mammalian or the emotional brain. And at the very core of that is the reptilian brain. And this is in terms of what evolved first in terms of animals. That's why we put that in the ranking in the lobes of the brain. But he's saying that Every species can vocalize in some way, but they're innate. They aren't learned and sophisticated. They're not guttural ways that if you smell something nice, you're like, hmm. Or if you smell something grotesque, you're like, ugh. Those are guttural, probably more innate 
ways that we communicate. But when you can start using words as a tool, and then even go so far as to using slang in ways to talk, like when Jay-Z was asked if he was part of the Illuminati, and he said, no, nah, that's two Tom Hanks for me. What does he mean by that? You could think Tom Hanks, he's an actor, it's too Hollywood, it's too grandiose of a story. Or Tom Hanks, he was in The Da Vinci Code, that's about a conspiracy, it's, they talk about the Illuminati, that kind of stuff. He could have meant either one, but in a way he's gesturing you towards this realm of thinking. Nah, it's too Tom Hanks for me. And we understand through context, and we have enough social context in pop culture that we can come to understand what he means, especially if you live in the same country and pay attention to the same stuff that he does. Where I'm going with this is Dr. Eric Jarvis said that the prefrontal cortex of the brain the not just the prefrontal, but the, the whole third lobe of the brain has hijacked the reptilian brain and even the midbrain. In a sense, you could say it hacked it. It overrode the program that it's supposed to run. This is kind of cool. So you have to pause and feel into the depth of what this means, that you can go into your base programming and override it. I feel like this is the invention of lying. If you've seen that film, The Invention of Lying. It's pretty funny the way they put it forth, but they tinker with the idea of what if lying wasn't a thing, but somebody just woke up with that gene or woke up with that mutation, and they were able to lie. And then they came to realize that if I can lie, and other people don't realize that's a tactic, and they don't see it coming, then I can kind of do whatever I want. I can kind of make people at least believe whatever I want them to believe. If we can hijack the brainstem, if we can hijack the midbrain with the prefrontal cortex or with the, um, the third lobe of the brain, then what we're doing at that point is we are with or without maturity, we are looking for a result and denying that the cause and all of its unintended consequences of lying and deceit won't come back as at least a net worse or a net negative effect on me. I'll get more, others will get less, and so in lies the story of separation. I can lie to you and get what I want, and that makes me better off and you worse off. And in this 3D world, it definitely looks that way. But I believe what's really happening on planet Earth is we don't really advantage the soul. We don't really advantage ourselves, our true selves, by lying and by getting some at the disadvantage of another. We don't really benefit from that. And I think on our deathbed, we come to atone for these things. So that's my rant on that. And I want to give it back to Dr. Eric Jarvis so he can explain a little bit deeper about the connection between vocalizations, uh, how it became sophisticated language, and how this actually can be seen in an evolutionary standpoint alongside other hominids like the Neanderthal and Denisovans. Then you can go back in time now based upon genomic data not only of us living humans, but of the fossils that have been found for Homo sapiens, of Neanderthals, of Denisovan, 
uh, individuals and discover that our ancestor, our human ancestors, supposedly hybridized with these other hominid species. And it was assumed that these other hominid species don't learn how to imitate sounds. I don't know of any species today that's a vocal learner that can have children with a non-vocal learning species. I, I don't see it. It doesn't mean it didn't exist. Uh, and when we look at the genetic data from these ancestral hominids that, uh, you know, where we can look at genes that are involved in learned vocal communication, they have the same sequence as we humans do for genes that function in speech circuits. So I think Neanderthals had spoken language. I'm not going to say it's as advanced as what it is in humans. I don't know. Um, but I think it's been there for at least between 500,000 to a million years.